Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Please keep in mind that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs. Not everybody will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say, so there will always be others that see it differently, and I understand that. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime, from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I'm still pinching myself. Thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. And that really marked the beginning of of my spiral into what I now know as PTSD, but certainly the darkness and I I wanted blood. I, I became almost homicidal. Today's guest, Keith Banks, is back again because I just can't keep him away. He keeps writing bestsellers about his life as a Queensland undercover cop, and his books are running off the shelves faster than they can be replaced. His first book, Drugs, Guns and Lies, sold out and required numerous reprints, and his second book, Gun to the Head, just seems to be going down a similar path. Keith's reported as being one of Queensland's most decorated police officers. Well, I'm going to go further than that and say, without doubt, he is Queensland's most decorated police officer. He received two Valor Awards for some of the bravest actions imaginable. Keith attended the Special Air Service Regiment in Perth to take part in the Police Assault Group Counter-Terrorist Instructors course, learning how to teach tactics and plan operations and how to smash his way into premises using stun grenades, tear gas and submachine guns. It's really the type of stuff that movies are made of. In July 1987, Keith needed every tactic he'd learned to capture Queensland's most wanted man, Paul James Mullen, a violent armed robber and an escapee. The operation was named Operation Flashdance and it will be the main topic of discussion today because of the major implications it had on Keith professionally and personally. It was a dangerous operation made even more dangerous by command, not providing the equipment that Keith requested due to budgetary constraints. Well, thanks very much for joining us today, Keith, and it hasn't been easy to get us all together. My IT is uh, all over the place yet again. <laughs> That's nice to be back, Narelle, and, you know, these things are sent to test us. Oh, they're testing me. Don't worry. Sometimes they do a bloody good job of it too. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Yeah. Anyway, look, thanks for coming back, Keith. Hey, Keith, 
considering the invaluable information that an undercover cop can obtain, it just seems surprising how you've written about how undervalued you were, like the little support that you got and how you were treated, as I think you said in your book, Collateral Damage. That surprises me. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it was back in the 80s and uh, and undercovers were, we were regarded just as exactly that, were a means to an end. Um, no one really understood what undercovers did. They they simply, as one of uh, great friends, still a great friend of mine who was a policewoman detective in the drug squad said in that wonderful Queensland way, she said, we just hit you on the ass with a bridle and off you went. And, so, <laughs> and, and that was it. We, we were just sent on jobs and, and we'd contact the office, you know, every couple of weeks or something and 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 there were a lot of detectives who took a, took the credit for arrests that were a direct result of undercover operations and and we were just yeah just used basically um welfare wasn't a big issue in queensland in the 80s on by any means in any department and uh and the very nature of undercover was But just- I don't think it was a big thing um anywhere Keith like welfare wasn't looked upon as it is now. Like, I don't think you were the Lone Ranger, although I think the undercover cops seemed to me, you're right, everyone else would do all the high fives and everything about getting the crook. But the undercovers, I don't think they were ever asked to a debrief. They were never asked to come and have drinks. Uh, Yeah, you're right. It was... um, was a different world, wasn't it? Yeah. I, look, I, I remember there was one particular job on the Gold Coast when I was back in the drug squad as a, as a normal detective um, and the job closed and the undercover, we were staying in a um, staying in a multi-storey hotel on the coast, you know, the job's finished, the boys are all on the piss and and, uh, and I looked around, they're all in a room and I said, Where, where's the UC? Oh, I don't know, mate, he's upstairs in his room, I suppose. So I, I <gasps> actually went upstairs and I spent the night with the undercover guy because he was by himself. And uh, and I just remember thinking, this is appalling. They're all down there, as you say, high-fiving, slapping each other on the back, and the undercover who's been the one living the life is mm. upstairs in his room all by himself. Mm. It, it, and it, it still still astounds me. But, um, but you're right, welfare wasn't a big thing in any part of the police force um, in the 80s. No, we've, we've turned a corner in a way, but we had to because it was um, – going down that well-known road and there's a lot of people that have been very damaged by that lack of welfare, um, I suppose, including ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and look, the under the, the damage that the undercover work and the, I was going to say lack of support, but the absence of support um, resulted in, in a couple of my friends, you know, go one, one went, well, two of them went to jail. Um, one, because he developed a heroin addiction that was a direct result of him being supplied with heroin by a couple of his controllers, because they it suited them to have, uh, and Harry was Lebanese, so it suited them to have a Lebanese undercover who was a junkie because they could put him into positions that, that other undercovers couldn't do. And, and you know, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% convinced that, uh, that that's what happened. And uh, he, left, he left the police force with a heroin addiction and became an armed robber because he he had no means of support. Um, and uh, another friend of mine was uh, sentenced to, I think he was sentenced to three years um, because long after he left undercover, he was a detective on the Gold Coast and he developed such a psychological addiction to smoking dope and drinking that that's what his life revolved around. And uh, and he offered to go easy on a, um, a crook on an assault charge so I think drop it down from assaulting company to common assault or something like that in return for $400. And, uh, and this, this crook was uh, an informer working for the Criminal Justice Commission and he recorded the, the conversation. No money ever changed hands, but Spider was arrested and I think he pleaded guilty and uh, sentenced to, to three years in jail. And, and I've spoken with him over the years since then and he said, mate, he said, I was so reliant on getting off my head that I, I was living from payday to payday and $400 was the price of a bag of pot. And he said I was going to go out and just buy a bag of pot. And and that was, you know, that's incredibly sad. And so there was no, no psychological uh, counselling or updates or welfare checking. They just threw us out there into the wilderness. And, and I was very fortunate, Narelle. I, I, I just had a change of lifestyle. I, I changed from a teetotaler to a binge drinker in, you know, three months. 
and um, and <laughs> and probably smoked way too much uh, way too much pot or weed while I was undercover. Um, but I came out relatively okay, probably hypervigilance, but um, but there, there are other friends of mine who were just casualties of it. Why do you think you came out of it, Keith, as, as well as you did? And uh, as you're saying, your mates, you know, some of them just went down that um, terrible road of actually ending up in jail. What was it about you that you felt you could deal with it and they couldn't? Um, I, I honestly don't know. I think maybe my resilience was better than I've given it credit for. Um, yeah. But I, I always had a strong moral compass as well. And as much as I enjoyed partying, I knew that if I let it take over, it, it would be a problem. Um, and I made the decision to go back out of undercover after almost a couple of years because I, I could just I, I knew I was changed. I knew I was changing, and and I was seeing the damage it was doing to the uh, to my colleagues. They were all men, all young men. Um, you know, a few of them were okay, but gee whiz, the, the most of them were really being psychologically screwed up by it. So I just thought. Time's up. Um, so I, I wanted to be a detective, and I'd always wanted to be a detective anyway. So I just volunteered, sorry, I, I um, applied to go back and went back to uniform and then applied for the detective's course and got onto that and became a detective. Um, but, I, you know, the, the, it's such an addictive lifestyle that the boys were staying in there because there was no supervision. You could do what you wanted, access to cash and guns and smoke weed and live the life of a crook, and that's where the excitement was. But I could see that that was just getting too, too enticing, and um, and that's when you step away. As as I as I've used a Frederick Nietzsche quote in, in book number two, when you're looking at the abyss, if you look at it too long, the abyss looks back at you. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's when you just know you've got to go woo back to the real world. Yeah, you just mentioned then about um, your hyper vigilance. Could you explain to the listeners how? Not so much how hypervigilance works, but how it affects us because we all as a cop, um, and I think you know everyone would agree that to stay alive on the streets, you've really got to be, you've got to, you learn to be hypervigilant and you just can't switch off, can you? Can you tell us about your hypervigilance? Yeah, it was it was like that from the time I started undercover. I was, you know, constantly checking my mirrors when I was driving a car. I'd take alternative routes home, you know, to, to make sure I wasn't being followed. I'd check my windows and doors before I went to bed. I'd, you know, walk into a, a pub or a cafe, checking, scanning everywhere in case someone knew me. Um, and then later in my career, it just ramped right up because once I moved into tactical operations for Victorian listeners, the Special Operations Group is the, um, uh, the counterpart in Victoria in the team I was in in Queensland. And once I started becoming involved in gunfights and and uh, and, my, and we'll talk about PTSD later, I'm sure, but the hypervigilance ramped up to another level where I would, I would be incredibly aware of my surroundings. I would check deadlocks on windows. So I'd lock my doors, then I'd go back and check them four or five times before I went to sleep. Sometimes I'd get out of bed and go and check them again, um, which is not normal. And, and that's, that hypervigilance, it's, it's the hypervigilance roller coaster. So you're absolutely correct. If you're on the street, you need to be aware of everything because, you know, the potential for, for um, life-threatening situations is there every time. Mm, the the is, general yeah. duties cop who goes to a domestic dispute, that's where most cops are killed. Um, so then you're in that hypervigilance state. Then you come home and it's very difficult to switch it off. And, and what you're doing or what I was doing was – I was waiting to go back to work because that's where the excitement was, and so my home life was boring by contrast. So it was a whole whole roller coaster. Life would be boring after what you do. You know, you're talking about gunfights and um, you know all this. I mean, really, movie star stuff, isn't it? Really, and then you go home to you know the lawnmower's broken or the you know <laughs> I need the dishwasher unpacked or whatever it be. I mean, yeah. it's pretty bloody dull, isn't it? Really. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And, yeah, and that's and that's. I mean, look, and, and that's my first marriage. That's um, that was why. And, and and in this book, I've written, as you know, very openly. You know, I'm I'm not. There are things I'm not proud of. Um, but they had to be told because that's that's part of the 
the darkness that I was living in. So it cost me my first marriage. I, I actually, I woke up one morning and said, I, I can't be here anymore. And it wasn't for any other reason than I just, I, I needed to be isolated, alone. Um, I couldn't share anything. I, I probably subconsciously blamed my first wife for that life being boring because I was so ex- it was so exciting at work. And, and from more I've read, the more that's quite common yeah. in cops. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that the whole hypervigilance thing keeps you alive, but it also, there's a, there's a penalty to pay. And, uh, and I certainly paid that. Yeah, you certainly did. And look, like, like I said in the intro, uh, today we were, we're going to talk um, quite a bit about Operation Flashdance. And that was um, a, a, a turning point in your career. Could you take us through where that all began? Yeah, that, that was a defining part of my life for sure. Um, well, I was in tactical, so tactical operations, and, and our job was to execute high-risk uh, warrants, respond to domestic sieges, be part of the counterterrorism response nationally and state and so on. So highly trained um, in, in those days. Yeah, they're more highly trained now. But, you know, we were, we were probably the tip of the spear. No, we were the tip of the spear. So we were tasked with, um, with planning a raid on a house in Walter Street, Virginia, um, information had been received that the number one most wanted armed robber in Queens or the number one most wanted in Queensland was living there. He was a violent armed robber. He'd, um, he'd been committing armed robberies since he escaped from Long Bay Prison, I think about seven years before, and this was 1987. Um, he'd, uh, he'd shot uh, and killed a security guard in cold blood. He'd shot and um, badly wounded another one in a separate robbery. No reason, just because he liked to do it. Um, and it was just a violent piece of work. We had been given information that he had a nanny, or he he was living with a woman who uh, had two ch- young children. She was his accomplice in the armed robbery, so she was no angel. Um, and they had a nanny who came in to clean the house and look after the kids while you know he and she were out doing whatever they were doing. And this woman, um, this woman knew that Mullen was a crook, but she didn't realise how bad he was. She'd seen guns in the house. In that typical Australian way, she went, oh, I mind my own business. You know, he hasn't hurt me. Um, and, uh, and the day before our information came in, um, he'd committed an armed robbery, and I think it was in Turnbull in Brisbane on a, uh, a building society. As he was running out, he had his 223 rifle, semi-automatic rifle, and a bag with about $36,000 in cash. There was a lot of cash in armed robberies in those days. A bystander tackled him brave young bloke, tackled him and they, and they wrestled around on the footpath and, and Mullen escaped with his firearm but left the cash behind. And that night, uh, a particular news channel interviewed the bystander or the bypasser and they gave his full name and the suburb that he lived in. Oh, my goodness. Now, and you and I both know it's not hard to find people and um, oh, unless they're people like us who don't want to be found. <laughs> um, but, uh, but then Mullen started screaming at the television how um, he was going to find this guy and he was going to kill him and he was going to square up. The woman who was at that stage 67, I think, um, heard it and freaked and went to a detective that she knew and told him. And then the whole thing was set into, into action and, and we were tasked to do what's called a deliberate action plan or a deliberate option. Um, yep. That's that's a, an operational order which, as you know, follows a specific format. And um, and I was I just finished the special air service course and uh, you know the counter inter- the counter terrorist instructors course. I was really on top of the game and and I was the team leader for this operation. So I, I did the plan. Um, we considered taking Mullen out in traffic. We considered you know taking him out on the footpath, but discounted that because his his background showed he'd have no hesitation in shooting. No, none at all. Yeah. And we were worried about civilian casualties. So the only thing we were left with was to go into the house and smash our way in. Um, so I put a plan together that involved the use of tear gas and um, distraction grenades or what are commonly known as stun grenades, flashbangs. Yeah, the things that you see on movies where they throw them in and they go bang, bang, bang. Very effective tool because it, it, um, if they're used correctly, they're, they're rolled into a room and they, they flash maybe six or seven separate small explosions, harmless physically but completely disorienting. So they're perfect for going in and getting the, the bad guy off balance. Um, put the plan together to go in at a certain time, uh, et cetera. But the day 
um, I wanted to choose the day based on intel and surveillance. Plan came back from Force Command and Headquarters to say a, a couple of things. We were refused permission to use tear gas because of the concern, apparently, about the two children in the house. Don't know how legitimate that was, and I'll explain that in a minute. And we weren't permitted to use stun grenades. And at that time, oh, sorry, and the third thing was they told us we had to go into the job the very next morning. And at the time, that was the very week that the Fitzgerald inquiry into corruption had started. And the first day headlines were not good. And the second day headlines were not good. Oh, yeah. We were instructed oh. to go in the next day, and, mm. and I'm absolutely convinced that Force Command wanted a headline yes. to take the corruption inquiry off the front page, and the headline they wanted was, number one, most wanted recaptured. Yep. Makes now, sense. Because, yep, <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah. you'd yep. think so. But they then took away the tools that I knew we needed to do um, to be effective. And and the other thing was we were, in those days, the the – bullet-resistant vests that were issued, because there's no such thing as a bulletproof vest. The bullet-resistant vests that were issued were very low quality. It was across the country, actually. Um, we were using the same vests as the SOG were in Victoria, and they, they were white vests that went under your um, black overalls, and they were only designed to stop a handgun or a shotgun, not rifles, certainly. So one of my friends, Peter Kidd, who I'd started in tactical with, who was a great bloke, um, Peter was in charge of the equipment as well as being an assault um, team leader like me, an assaulter like me. Um, and to explain to your listeners, essentially there were assault teams. They're the ones that smash in through doors or jump out of helicopters or go through roofs or you know, emerge out of vehicles and frighten the bejesus out of armed robbers and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then you have snipers or marksmen who who basically very rarely fire a shot, but they're the ones who lay out in the in the in the fields for a day or two watching a house and i thought no bugger that you know i want to be where the excitement is <laughs> absolutely um, <laughs> yeah. besides it'd be cold um <laughs> but um peter had peter had put a request in to uh command to have our, our ballistic vests up, upgraded because he was concerned about their lack of um suitability that was knocked back because of budget right <gasps> um we, we weren't and again you know People in charge in those days were more worried about being promoted by managing their budget and coming in under budget because it made them look good. So in essence, we um, we were told to go in. So we smashed in through the back door at 5.30 the next morning. And, and I, you know, I was pretty pissed off because you should never be told when you're going to do a raid. No. We never had in the past. This was clearly a political decision. And I say political by the bosses. Um the problem was that Mullen, because he, he was a smart operator too, he had um, he changed the way the door opened from inwards to outwards, which uh, slows down an entry team by a few seconds. Um, he'd built a trap door in the um, floor of his bedroom, um, which allowed him to quickly um, exit the bedroom and straight out to the front of the house and escape. Um, when we started When we started smashing in the door, because I couldn't use distraction grenades or tear gas, I, I had a team outside his bedroom and it was a typical Queensland house. It sort of sloped down to the front. So while the back door was level with the backyard, the front was about a metre and a half off the ground. So that's where his trap door led to under that house so he could, he could get out. Um, and my instructions to them were if they heard us smashing the door, because we were going to try to get in covertly, but that didn't work. If they heard us smashing the door, they were to throw a ladder through the bedroom window and make him think a team was coming in that way. So a distraction. There should always be a diversion, um, a diversion in any plan. And uh, and so that happened. And as soon as they, they threw the ladder through his window and smashed his bedroom window, he was up out of bed and fired two shots through the skirting board at exactly where a team would be climbing up on that ladder. So he was on. It was on. And um, we went into the house. It was pitch dark. Um, so, again, no no tear gas, no distractions, and we just physically had to go into the room. And Peter was first um, at the door, and he was shot through the door. And, and I remember seeing uh, Pete push the door open and bringing his weapon up to take an aim position. Another shot's hit him. And, uh, and then my best friend, Steve, I was right standing right beside him. He was shot... Um, under his vest, so just an inch above his groin, um, and the round pushed him back into the corridor. 
Um, and this all happened so quickly. Mm-hmm. And then another team, the team leader of Assault Team 2 that, that I'd tasked with protecting the children in the rear bedroom, leapt across the gunfire and started engaging the crook. And, and he and I rushed into the room together mm-hmm. and we both shot Mullen and killed him. Mm-hmm. And at the time this was happening, Mullen was actually was at the trapdoor behind a set of drawers firing back at us trying to escape through the trapdoor. If he'd been able to get out, there was a cordon of police out the front of the house, he would have taken many more with him, absolutely. Mm. Um, so then, you know, then it all, all finished. He was dying in the corner. He's dead in the corner. His, uh, his partner was hiding under a doona on the mattress on the floor. She sat up, bolt upright, and she never knew how close she was to me taking her out. You know, I, I had a, my weapon aimed at her forehead. I could hear Peter screaming in pain. I knew it wasn't good. Um, and in that split second, my my lizard brain is nagging mm. at me to pull the trigger and kill mm. her. Okay. And thank God my moral compass and my training took over and, you know, empty hands, no threat. So I moved over to assist Peter and um, and he died that morning in hospital. And that, uh, <clears throat> that, still, that still hurts um, even all these years later. And, uh, and that really marked the beginning of, of my spiral into into what I now know as PTSD, but certainly the darkness. And and I became, I, I wanted blood. I, I became almost homicidal. So I volunteered for every single high-risk job I could in the tactical. I never took leave. I wanted to be with my boys. I wanted to have the opportunity to shoot the next crook that pointed a gun at me or them. Um, whereas before Flashdance, we, we'd done hundreds of jobs, and there were many times where, where people were armed, and I'd always give them a chance to put the weapon down. And from that point on, I never did um, because I, you know, I was never going to be in that position again. Um, Pete was married. You know, it was just heartbreaking. Um, and Steve, thank God, he survived, but he he had a colostomy bag for nine months. That's how bad the wound was. And, I, you know, I, we thought he was going to die in that first three days as well because he, he actually had died on the operating table a couple of times. And it was just um, an incredibly dark day um, and, and, and a very surreal one, you know. And, um, and the sad thing was there was – and I don't condemn the, the department for this, but there was no psychological support or counselling because they just didn't know. You know, it hadn't happened before. We, whilst there had been police killed over the years, they were essentially, you know, shot at domestic sieges or, or not domestic sieges, sorry, domestic disturbances or there'd never been anything like this. Um, and, and, and we were just basically left to fend on our own. Um, the homicide squad were involved and they, 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 of course, had to go to the scene. It was a crime scene. They had to take state. They had to do formal interviews with us and so on. Um, and then the only support, <laughs> and you, you have to chuckle at this because the only support we really got was after the detectives from the homies uh, took our statements and it was all signed off. They took me upstairs to the police club and got me pissed. Um, and that's after, you know, 24 hours of no sleep. And, and they did it with the right intentions, you know. Um, but that, that, that was – and then it was almost as if, you know, it was never spoken of again. You know, there's there's so many questions in that, Keith, but there's a couple yeah. of things. First of all, uh, on reading your book, you might tell the listeners about Peter actually shouldn't have even been there. Yeah. Um, yeah, Pete – I, I, I didn't want him to go. Um, I, I had I had a real gut feeling that this wasn't going to go well. Um, and it's one of those things that you can't explain. It's just intuition. And I had a sense of dread about this job, even though we'd done hundreds of them. Um, and I mean, I've you know I've written about a helicopter insertion raid we did on a mafia-controlled drug crop. You know, fantastic. Nothing ever went wrong. <laughs> yeah. But this one, I just didn't feel right about it. And Pete had uh, he and his, his lovely wife had had a stillborn child only uh, maybe six or eight weeks earlier, and oh, um, yeah. and he was the only one of us who was married. And and I just had my had this gut feeling. I had this dread, and I thought, no, nah, I'm not going to put him in the team. You know, none of my business to exclude him because of that. 
as a tactical guy, but as a human being, I just didn't want him in there. And uh, and I put the team together, and, and one of the assaulters that I, was going to be my number one withdrew from the job because he'd actually been on a bush trip um, and he'd met Mullen, had no idea who Mullen was. Mullen had no idea that my mate was a cop. And they met when they were out pig hunting or something. And he came to me, he said, mate, I've realised who he is. I've seen the photo. I, I can't do this because I'm, you know, but, and I went, fair enough. No no issue at all. And then Pete pushed me and pushed me to uh, to get onto the assault team. And, and um, I just couldn't, there was no reason I could say no. And, uh, you know, he, he, like me, he'd completed the SAS course. He was a bloody better shot than I was, and I was pretty good. Um, and there was no, there was no, no valid reason I could exclude him. And, and unfortunately, um, then he wanted to be first in through the door because every, every tactical guy in the world has their, their screws turned a little bit too tightly to the right. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're all a bit different. And, um, yeah. and every single one of us wants to be the first in through the door. And, oh, yeah. uh, and I yeah. couldn't. My, my job as team leader in what's called the Order of March meant I had to be, the, I had to be number four. There's no choice. Steve, my mate, had been number one on the previous five or six jobs and he wanted to be number one as well. Mm. I wanted to be number one even though I was supposed to not anyway. Yeah. So we had this this whole discussion and I said to Steve, no, mate, you're, this is, you, you've done it six times in a row. But Pete said, I'm in. So, you know, we in, in the tactical world, the team leader does absolutely have the final say over everything, but any good leader communicates with his or her team. So we all we all came to the, to the same decision. So it's what's called a Chinese parliament, I think the SAS call it. Um, so we all we all decided. Yep, no worries, Pete. You know you're number one. And then Jesus, you know it. Um, yeah. It all tragically unfolded. Keith, Keith, when you talk about intuition there, and from the moment that job came up, you said you had this just a gut feeling. But isn't it amazing when you talk about the fact that. Every it's almost like every corner you turned, there was an issue. So you want the the right equipment? No, you can't have the equip the equipment that you need. Then you want then you go to uh, the uh, oh the the boss comes back and says we're going in tomorrow. Like as you say, it just it just didn't sort of go smoothly. There was like little. Um, oh, stop yeah, obstacles. Yeah. yeah, obstacles. Yeah. 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 yeah you're probably right in the wrong. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online 
and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, that probably added to it. And, you know, I, I've told people for years, always go with your intuition. Um, but this is a job, you know, that was a job where we couldn't say, listen, Banksy doesn't think it's right, so we're not going to do it, you know. Um, yeah, but you I remember nothing to justify it. We've had yeah, that's you. right. Like, it's that's just right. a gut feeling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I, I remember, you know, I remember it's funny how things come back to you. We we were driving under, under cover of night. It had been raining heavily, and I thought that's perfect because the rain will actually cover any noise we make. Yep, five minutes before we, we stopped um, down the street to disembark from our vehicles, a bloody rain stopped. And, um, and as we're driving along, we always had my team and I would always give each other the, uh, the, the, the handshake, not a formal, you know, not, not a formal handshake, but the, how do I explain it? The, Ooh, the, the like brother a handshake. Se- like a secret handshake? Oh, no, just the more the brother <laughs> handshake, you know, where you yeah. clasp hands. And, and, oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we'd always do it. That was our ritual. And generally, or every other job, you know, even on the helicopter insertion, any other jobs I'd done, we'd always laugh and joke because that was a way just to break the tension. And then, then I'd say, okay, let's switch on. We're switching on now. On that drive out, none of us laughed and joked except Peter. And, and I remember we stopped, gave each other the handshake, and he was, he was just happy as. Yeah. And, and the three of us obviously had the same ominous feeling, and, and he didn't. And, um, and I've often thought about that and thought, gee, you know, yeah, wow, it's 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 quite a somber conversation to have, and um, and you know, that that dealing with that, and and I will never forget the screams of agony that the poor bugger had, and and um, and lo and behold, when the media covered all of this, and and it was it was leaked to the media, and I don't know who would have done that. Um, that um, that Peter had ordered the vests and they'd been knocked back, <laughs> and uh, chuckle, chuckle, and um, <laughs> and when it hit the media, it hit the fan, and uh, and, and suddenly so they bloody should. Yep, but this particular superintendent who'd knocked it back then spent quite a deal of time covering his ass, and 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 the force command was more concerned on trying to find out who leaked it to the media, and good luck. Um, than they were with actually rectifying it. But they found the budget and then decided they'd fly me and uh, a senior sergeant to Sydney for two weeks to test ballistic vests. We did all of that with the SWAS in Sydney and and other um, uh, operators from around the country. We all tested a myriad of vests for, you know, bullet resistance and comfort and uh, operational suitability. And lo and behold, the ones that everyone decided on were the same ones Pete applied for that had got knocked back. Still pisses so, me off. Yeah, and, and it would, yeah, that's putting it mildly because mm. really, because of budgetary constraints, you'd have to say, or budgetary issues, and somebody coming in on but under budget, really, that's why one of the main reasons Peter got kicked. Well, you'd have to say the main reason, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would. I, although you know, the round that killed him um, hit his collarbone and ricocheted. Um, and split his heart in two. So I, I don't know that a, a ceramic plate would have stopped that. I don't know, but we'll never know. The stun grenades you know? might have. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if I'd have been allowed to use use uh, distraction grenades, stun grenades, would have been a different result, you know. Um, and and that's what that's what haunted me for years, Narelle. So I, oh, I, I just went straight, almost straight into just this overwhelming sadness and, and then to – um, put the icing on the cake, I suppose. Uh, maybe a month later, I can't remember. Um, we were given we were given information that came from Sydney from coppers we could trust because <laughs> Sydney coppers weren't all that honest in those days. Um, from from a from a, a certain area we could trust that there was a contract on my head and a contract on my colleague's head because we'd killed the offender. So rather than you know, ramp up security at our houses as they would now and put in cameras and protection. They just gave us permission to carry our firearms off duty um, and that was it. So my hypervigilance went through the roof, of course, and, and I was always armed, you know, which is very unusual, as you know. Yeah, um, yeah. I'd, go, I'd go out always, never, that thing never left my, left my side. Um, and and that, 
probably added to my angst and stress and depression and PTSD and whatever it was I was going through because um, I, I kind of felt abandoned, I suppose. Um, yes. And the other thing was, you know, the media, once, once all the um, celebration of a police hero, which is quite rightly, um, wore off, then the keyboard warriors came out, and this is before bloody computers were invented, but you know what I mean. They led it led us to the editor, and then the the alleged journalist who started writing articles about how we how we stuffed it up and how it was bungled, and you know how this should have happened and that should have happened. And in fact, one of them, and I haven't met him yet, I've never forgotten his name, and it's probably best I don't meet him. Um, he's still in Brisbane. He's still in the game. He um, he wrote an article for the Sunday Sun newspaper, I think it was called. And the headline, the front page was Mullen Pleads for Mercy, <gasps> which was all bullshit. He had interviewed Mullen's de facto, who ended up getting six years in jail, I think. Um, and she claimed that we'd gone in there firing at him. He'd defended himself. And then when he'd been shot, he was lying in the corner pleading for mercy. Then he was finished off. And, and we couldn't respond to that. We had no public voice to respond to it. And I remember my lovely mum, who's passed away now, she rang me from Charters Towers where, I, you know, she was still living near Townsville in North Queensland. And she said, oh, I've got to ask you, did, did that really happen? And I thought, you oh, bastard. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm very angry and still very angry, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> and and it probably would not be good for him to run into me, basically. But you uh- well, no. Uh, although I'd love to Not see. Not that I do anything, Narelle. I just I'd speak harshly <laughs> to him, and you know that's about it. <laughs> I'd love to be there when you when you did sort of happen to pass him. But you know yeah. the thing that uh, I mean, there's so many things there that are so wrong. But the people that are making decisions about these these vests, the people are making decisions about you've got to go. You have got to go in tomorrow. These are people in managerial um, positions who who didn't have your expertise, they hadn't been to all the courses that you'd been to. And I was going to be a bit harsh then and send, say that they, you know, wouldn't know an angry man if they bit him on the ass. but <laughs> I suppose, um, but it, it just makes me angry that these people that are making the decisions aren't listening to those on the ground like you who had done years of all this intense training. You knew what you were talking about. Yeah, and and you know what this this particular person and he's passed away now. Um, he had been an operation. He had been on the street as a cop, but he'd been on the street as a cop when they didn't carry guns. When and he was your classic, you know, over six foot tall, ruled with his fists when he was a young bloke on the street. He had the classic old style copper. They thought that any tactical work were, we were cowboys. That. Um, you know, there wasn't really any need for that sort of fancy stuff, which is essentially what we've been called a few times. And and you're right, he made a decision without consulting. He wouldn't have known what a stun grenade was. He would have thought that, you know, maybe it, it, it can kill people. Who the hell knows? But, but rather than saying, okay, help me understand what exactly you're talking about, help me understand why you need this, he just went, no, no. And, and it was... And I'm still convinced it was it was a couple of things. It was the corruption inquiry, deflection. They wanted to deflect from that. Oh, yeah. But yeah. he also was chasing the next promotion. So when people get to that stage, and I'm going to generalise, not all of them are like this, but I, my experience is that people get to that stage there, they don't want to make a decision that might reflect badly on them because it will affect their next promotion, rather than be concerned about the safety and welfare um, of the operators on the street doing the job. Mm. You know, it's 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 one of the biggest criticisms that I have of any police force is that, you know, the shiny asses as we call them, um, just sit up there in the ivory tower and they make decisions in isolation because it looks yeah. good on a resume. Yeah, and that is so true. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A-T-R-E-O-N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there, 
who continue to support me. Thank you so much. You know, what surprises me is that Mullins allowed a nanny into the house where, like, she would have seen and heard all sorts of things going mm. on. Mm. Um, did So she did know about um, Mullins' criminal history, yeah? Yeah, she knew he was a crook. She just didn't know how violent he was. And, and she was actually a friend of his de facto's family. Okay. So, right. so yeah. you know, I, I, I'm guessing the de facto vouched for her. Mm. And, um, and look, you know, she was no angel either, um, you know, um, but she, she just went, oh, well, he's got guns, you know, it's none of my business. Oh, but when well. she, you know, yeah, <laughs> when she heard him threatening this guy, that's oh, when yeah. she, she yeah. really went, oh, geez, this isn't good. Because um, remember, Narelle, for, the, for those of you younger, re- younger listeners, the gun laws in the 80s were bloody lax. You know, it wasn't until oh, yeah. Port Arthur, what was Port Arthur, 97, 98? Yep, yep. Um, but anybody could go and buy a high-powered rifle anywhere, uh, shotgun, rifle, semi-automatics. You could literally go into Kmart and buy them without showing your driver's licence in Queensland. It was bizarre. So really? almost every house had a firearm. Mm, yeah, yep. That's why Queensland rebelled so much about the uh, gun laws that Howard introduced, you know, so because everybody had guns. Were you ever concerned about... So it wasn't unusual. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sorry, were you ever concerned about the safety uh, of the nanny? Because it would have been fairly obvious, obviously Mullins passed away, but his partner, um, like, was she ever in... In um, danger. Well, I suppose she yeah. was, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, she was. Yeah, there, there was protection put in place for her. Um, she had a couple of phone calls from a number that was traced back to, I think it was connected with an outlaw motorcycle gang, um, oh, and God. she was threatened. Yeah. Um, so you know, she was she was actually really well looked after, and she's she's long long passed away herself. Um, but you know, leading up to the inquest and then afterwards, um. But I, I just I tend to think also that a lot of crims talk a good fight, um, but when it comes down to push and shove, they don't follow through with it. So the threat on my life, um, whilst it was credible, yeah, I, I think it would have been a big move for anybody to try and have a go, particularly given you know my training and background and my mate's training and background, and, and we were pretty tough, capable blokes in those days. Um, it'd be a big ask to to try and ambush a tactical guy. And I think to follow through and murder a witness, even though, you know, the whole underworld um, gang war here was, wow, bizarre. Yeah. I I think it's still a big call. I think it's still a big call. So, you know, particularly when it's obvious that security has been increased, doesn't mean it would never happen. Um, But, you know, I I think she died about five years later or something. Okay. And Keith, just talking about safety there, now that you are an author writing about people, um, you know, in back in whenever, what was it, 87 or whatever, um, but mm, you've written mm. about a lot of things and you don't shy away from naming people, do you ever concern mm-hmm. yourself with your own safety now? Um, a few people have asked me that actually and, uh, and no. No, I'm. I'm. Um, I think the message that I want to get out to the world about mental health and PTSD and policing generally, and and um, far outweighs the risk. I think the benefit far outweighs the risk. And and look, you know, you'd want to have a bloody long grudge forty years later. I reckon. <laughs> um, you know, so when I say forty years later, that was the eighties. But um, even even this, that's what thirty four years, I guess. Mm. Um, and, and, and um, yeah, I mean, police police go through that all the time anyway. Um, and I'm not going to be arrogant enough to say bring it on, but, um, you know, I, I'm still aware of my surroundings and my environment. And, uh, yeah, as I say, I think the risk is quite low. Um, but the, the opportunity it gives me to talk about um, – PTSD and treatment pathways and and the importance of communication and and hopefully you know people listen to these podcasts and read my book and they'll they'll walk away with a different appreciation of police 
regardless of what's happening at the moment with the protesters, let's just put all that to one side. But, you know, if people can actually look at a cop next time they see one after my reading my books and go, okay, you know, I, I sort of get it now. Um, they're not just there to write traffic tickets and, and they're not there just to look frightening. They actually go through a lot of things and do a very, very important job. So happy, happy, to, happy to take a small risk with that. Yeah, and I know what you mean because that's why I – that's probably one of the main driving reasons that I do these podcasts is to expose people to what it is like to be a cop and the, and the things that we see and just to t- sort of try and maybe think a little bit differently next time you see one. Um, uh, you, we've in, in your book, in your the latest book, I notice – there was something that made my blood boil about Peter's funeral. Mm. Do you know? That? Yeah. So, oh. um. Oh. Yeah. The the police minister. As if there wasn't an L. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Almost the final straw, really. Yeah. It was. Um, yep. So the the police commissioner attended Terry Lewis, who was later jailed for corruption. You know, but that that's um that was a, f- a couple of years down the track. He he led the funeral parade as he should. And uh, and and any police funeral should be attended by the police minister, if not the police minister and the premier. The police minister at that stage was uh, on the same day he chose to open a martyr prize home rather than go to a slain policeman's funeral, and that did not favour him at all with all of the police force. Um, and, and, a, and a funny anecdote to that, Steve was still in hospital. He was in hospital for quite some time. And um, and the police minister, the backlash was the backlash hit the media and he was roundly condemned as he should have been. He decided to go to the hospital to visit Steve and, and obviously try to make up for it with his little media entourage. And, uh, and Steve was a lot like me. He didn't suffer fools either. And um, so he's lying in hospital, you know, he's got a massive wound to his stomach and been operated on a number of times, colostomy bag, all that stuff. And the, the matron, you remember the old matrons from hospitals, they were, they were scary. They were oh, really yeah. scary. And, uh, <laughs> and the, uh, the matron came in and said, uh, listen, Steve, the Minister for Police wants to see you. Is he here with his entourage in the media? And Steve said, well, you can tell him to piss off. And she said, I will. So she walked out and said, said to the police minister, he doesn't want to see you. He said you can piss off. And I agree with him, so piss off. <laughs> and, oh, and, and, and he turned he turned tail like a whipped cattle dog and, and sort of, you know, with his head down and walked out. Oh, I Unbelievable. love it. Unbelievable. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, but that just made all of us so angry, Narelle, as you, as you can certainly understand. Oh, the, the words fail me. I just, uh, yeah, we've had some similar situations here anyway. Won't go into them. I mm, don't have time. Mm. Um, um, Keith, your physical training was extreme and intense. What about your mental training? Um, that's a good question. Um, Thank you. We, <laughs> <laughs> we, we really... Um, we really fed off each other as far as that was concerned, and and it's even now, you know, I watch uh, I watch SAS Australia because you know the the um, the directing staff on there are the real deal. They are veterans. They've gone through. They are either SAS or Special Boat Service. Got they're, they're brilliant. Yep. And and I watch that now, and I was actually watching it with my wife a couple of nights ago, and I said. They were talking about aggression, and I said, well, actually, what it is, it's speed, aggression, speed, controlled aggression, surprise, confidence, teamwork. And and they were the things that were drilled into us by the SAS. So they taught us how to switch on aggression and switch it off. They taught us, um, you know, how to plan. They taught us to have that whole teamwork thing. So, so under their tuition, the mental toughness was there for sure. What they didn't prepare us for was was loss like this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even though some of our instructors had were Vietnam era SAS guys, and they were the tough, they were tough men. No one really talked about it. Um, I did get some phone calls from a couple of SAS operators that became good personal friends of mine after Pete was killed, and, and they actually rang me and, and reached out, and, and we talked about a lot of things. Um, and I had phone calls from from people I'd met around the country in the tactical operations area, who again were great friends of mine. But no one really knew how to give us advice to get through it. 
So the mental toughness in dealing. So if it had been if it had been a case in a role where we'd killed the offender, and Peter was still alive, yeah. I guarantee you, I would not have lost one moment's sleep. Guarantee no. it. Yep. Um, because that's just the job, you know. And he was a scumbag, and he deserved to go. Um, but when you lose one of your friends, and, and particularly what I understand now about survivor guilt in, in post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, yeah. I had survivor guilt, you know, and survivor guilt is why did I survive and he didn't? Why, why should I have moved to the left? Should I have done something else? Should I have been more forthright with the bosses? Should I have demanded this? Should I, should I, should I, should I? And, th- and that went on for 25 years. And it's a horrible place to be. It's a horrible place to be. Um, I thought about that job pretty much every day for 25 years, you know, and, and things would – I'd see something in, on, on TV or something would trigger it or, you know, I'd have a, I'd have a, um, a mental flashback, not so much, you know, where you see things, but I'd just go back into that moment. Um, and, uh, and that's why I, I stress now the importance of talking to people. I, I really – I really wish that I'd had the confidence to tell people how I was feeling then, mm. you know, and I probably would have been able to get more support than I did. Why didn't you? What stopped you? Um, probably fear of being judged, fear of uh, because it was an alpha male environment and and I, I, I probably had fear of the fact that if I opened up and became vulnerable, they may well have moved me out of the team. Absolutely. And, Yep. And if they'd moved me out of the team, that would have had disastrous results for my psyche and my self-esteem and my sense of self-worth, I reckon. So I swallowed it all down because that's where, that's where my mates were. That's where my life was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you write about um, um, the fact that you didn't want to say anything because you would have been taken off that job that you love mm. and that's what stops us but then you know management in a way they they're damned if they do and damned if they don't if they don't do anything and something happens to us you know we I don't know we end our lives with our um you know ish, police issue firearm or whatever um you know you've got to be there's a very fine line when somebody says I'm actually not coping or I'm stressed what do you do do you just say oh you'll be right we'll go and go and talk to a psych I mean in a way they almost have to take you off the team don't they really if, well, if they think, were yeah. responsible sort of or am I have I got the wrong end of the stick there no 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 you're right these days um Absolutely. In those days, there were no rules, procedures, policies or anything. Um, it wasn't until I was involved in another shooting probably almost a year later that they they uh, determined that we had to go and talk to the government medical officer, um, who was the police doctor, I suppose. And um, and I thought, gee, you know, at least I can talk to someone this time. I was in there for two minutes. <laughs> he, just, he just had my name on a, on a checklist and went, well, you look all right. How are you going? Oh, and I thought... Okay, yeah, no, I'm fine. Yeah, okay, good. Send the next one in. And yeah, um and yeah. that was it. But you could talk your way out of a you could talk your way way out of a paper bag. So, you know, you could you could we cuz I'm the same, you could tell anyone what they want to hear from a psych point of view. You can tell you know what they want to hear and you can pretend I think you learn to pretend very very well when you know you're not coping, but you can put on this facade, and I've talked about it before, that that wall, we build a wall so tall, so thick and so strong that nobody can penetrate it, not even ourselves. Mm, yeah, very true. That's very true. And and you're, you're right, you can you become very adept at uh, telling people what you think they want to hear, and and you actually can outsmart the average bear, you know, Um and, and for me, it was I, I had the outside confidence. I was still the old Banksy on the outside. I was still, you know, the laugher and the joker and the switched-on guy and the tough guy and everything I needed to be. But on the inside, I was just racked. I, I was just racked with guilt and remorse and um, homicidal tendencies, you know. I, it was just I look back on it and I go, man, wow, you know, I was in a dark, dark place. Yeah. Um, you know, and I actually sat there, and as I've written about it in the book very openly, I sat there not long after Pete was killed and put my firearm in my mouth and thought about squeezing the trigger. Yeah. Um, yeah. And once I realised 
that I'd come that close, I thought, shit, I've got some problems. Um, yeah. So I went to see a doctor and uh, and I didn't know. I was just going to, you know, try and scam my way into a week off on sick leave. <laughs> and uh, and as soon as he asked me how I was, I burst into tears and, and I cried for probably an hour. And, um, and he gave me two weeks leave, sick leave. And the same bloody superintendent who had <gasps> knocked back the ballistic vests rang my boss and said, I see Banks is on leave. What's wrong with him? Now, which is totally because he, he knew I didn't like him very much and, um, and, and it's totally inappropriate to ask if someone, as you know, someone has a yes. medical certificate of sick leave, yeah. it's none of their goddamn business what it is and, uh, and it made me angry as well. And so my boss, who was a great guy, he, uh, he paged me and I rang him and back in the old days before mobiles and, uh, and he said, oh, look, the boss wants to know why you're on sick leave and I went off tap. I just lost it. And he said, mate, mate, I know, I know, I understand. We've got to tell him something. And I just said, uh, so we'll tell him I've got a sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> love it. <laughs> and and he, he laughed and he said, he said, nah, well, mate, he'd probably believe that. But uh, let's let's just tell him you got the flu. Said, okay, oh, whatever. I you know? love it. Oh, I love it. Um, oh. You know, it, it just, and, and I still struggle with incompetence in senior people today. In an organisational sense, I still struggle with it. I still have to go, you know, you guys are idiots. I've learnt to bite my tongue. I've learnt to to really respond in a very professional way and still bring them down, but not like I used to. But um, you know, it's, and again, it's just that I guess it's that lack of um, that lack of emotional intelligence that that people in police command often have. Um, I'm not tarring them all with the same brush. There are some great leaders for sure. They certainly But are. a lot of them have that lack of emotional intelligence who they just don't yeah. they don't get it. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, and and, mm. yeah, and that's that's really sad. Yes, it is, and it's far too common, uh, I would agree. Now, Keith, unfortunately we're going to have to um uh start to uh uh wind up. I suppose there's just Two other things. One is I want you to be able to tell people where they can buy your books, um, Drugs, Guns and Lies and Gun to the Head. But what have you learned and that you'd like to share with other men out there in particular who've been, who might be concerned about a mate, a brother, a father, son, I don't know, colleague, whatever? What, what do you want to say to them? I, I think, well, there's two things, isn't there? One, one is if you are going through this, you need to talk to your friends or your family. Um, absolutely. Put your hand up and say, I'm not doing well. You won't be judged. I guarantee you won't be judged. If you are a mate who can see someone struggling, you know, it's often as simple as, I'm going to come over and have a cup of coffee with you. And you sit down to them and say, are you okay, buddy? I, I noticed I noticed you're not quite yourself. Are you okay? And and when you do that in that in that friendly, non-judgmental way, you will be absolutely surprised how many people will tell you. I bet. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, and men particularly, because we are not emotional creatures. Well, we are. A lot of women misunderstand men. We are emotional creatures, but we hide it. Yeah. And and we're not outward. Yeah. We don't we don't tell our mates everything like women do. I've I've been very jealous of the relationship that women have with each other because you'll tell everybody everything. Um, whereas Not everything, we, but a lot. <laughs> oh, my experience with women, you, t- you, know, you tell a lot then, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah. with men, we tend not to. So, you know, I, I, it's, it's either – it's both sides of the coin. Put your hand up and say, mate, I'm not well. I'm, I'm struggling actually, having a bad day. Or get over there and ask your mate how he's going. Um, but as far as the books are concerned, Narelle, yep, uh, if <laughs> – well, Victoria's closed. New South Wales is closed. But um, – Booktopia online, um, absolutely. I, I actually signed personally signed a couple of hundred of a couple of hundred or more actually copies for Booktopia, so you can still order a signed copy. Um, Drugs, Guns, and Lies has now been re-released in a paperback format, um, so that's also Booktopia. Wow. Um, the books on Audible for those people who don't like to read, who you know may doing long haul drives and whatever. Um, and Audible, it's it's narrated by Joel Jackson, the same young Australian actor who did my first one. He's done a cracker of a job. Um, 
And and basically, yeah, if you're in states where the bookstores are open, I know that Dimmix and QBD and you know the the, the chain bookstores have them, Big W, Target, etc. So um, I've been very very humbled by the take up of the first book, and and I believe um, Gun to the Head's doing pretty well as well. Well, when you have somebody like John Sylvester say it's um, the what did he say something like the best book he's read or something in a decade, mm. I reckon that's a pretty good accolade, Keith. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> I think. Look, Keith, I'm going to have to love and leave you. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your patience with my IT issues. It's very much no appreciated. <laughs> and uh, always, we'll talk- a, always a pleasure. And we'll talk soon and love to uh, your wife and your beautiful yeah. girls. Thanks, Narelle, and, uh, no. and love to your uh, your hubby. I look forward I- to catching up with him at some stage. Like- likewise. All right. Thanks, Keith. Bye. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.